A question for you. What's the most unusual gift you've ever, you've ever received? We're in a series called The Gifts, and what's the most unusual gift you've ever received? I was thinking about that. My wife and I were just kind of mulling over some of the most unusual gifts we've received, and we've had a few. And um, probably one of the most unusual would be, uh, it, was give, it was the manner in which it was, not only what it was, but the manner in which it was. We, I had, must have told somebody at some point in our life, this was years back, or we'd been married about 10 years, and, and uh, I've been told someone that we'd never, in the history of our marriage, had our own mattress. We've never bought a mattress. It's always been hand-me-downs from other people. And um, anyway, uh, it was my birthday, and I was getting ready to preach the message, and the door opened from the back. Someone said, Pastor, hold on. And a couple of guys came down carrying a mattress in the middle of the Sunday morning church service. And they put it right here at the front, you know, leaned it up. So here's like the pulpit. Here's this big mattress, you know, about almost neck level. And they said, happy birthday. And they went and sat down. So can you imagine, I'm standing here with a big mattress in front of me. And everyone's just sitting there watching. And I'm like, what do you do when you want to preach a message with a mattress in front of you? I, I didn't know how to go about it. And everyone, uh, I, I finally said, would you all mind just maybe, thank you, thank you for the mattress. Um, you might put it against the wall. And oh yeah, okay, so they moved it against the wall. And uh, we took it home. And uh, can I just tell you, it was the hardest mattress we've ever slept on in our life. It was, I mean, it was pretty, but we tried. We really tried uh, to make it work. It just wasn't happening. Finally, we gave it away to a newlywed couple. They wouldn't know the difference. So anyway, we, we just, just kind of moved on, <laughs> on from there. But gifts, giving gifts. I want to read our text out uh, this morning uh, out of the book of Matthew, chapter 2, when they saw the star, the Magi, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary. They bowed down and worshiped him. And then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. Uh, this morning, um, we're going to go a little deep, okay? okay we're, I think you can handle it. I think you, you're, you're, you're good. Um, but we're going to go a little deep this morning. Um, just kind of felt impressed that that's the direction we need to go. So uh, hang on. We're going to be okay. And I think you'll be a better person for it. Um, but we're going to talk about these gifts. Well, last week, as a form of review, we talked about these magi briefly coming. Of course, they were, many believe, came from Persia area a long ways away. Magi were considered um, counselors to the king at that time. Uh, kings wouldn't usually make any decision without going through the magi or the counselors. In fact, it would be the magi or the counselors that would approve of the next king to be put into power. They were very, very powerful, very wealthy individuals that, in a sense, was like, if you would imagine, the cabinet of the king uh, at that time. These specific magi, or one portion of them anyway, had studied the prophetic <clears throat> words of Daniel and no doubt loved God, knew God, followed after God, and God honored their hunger for him by showing a star in the east, which they followed, believing it would lead them to the Messiah. And so they came with incredible gifts, no doubt with an entourage of camels, perhaps a small army to protect the treasures. 
It wasn't like many uh, manger scenes have, you know, three wise men. That's, we get the three wise men from a song uh, that doesn't really have biblical um, uh, 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 meaning at this moment. Uh, it doesn't necessarily say there was three. It just, we just, the song said, let's pick three because it matches one per gift. But probably it was a, probably 10, 20, 30, we don't know. And plus the small arm, plus all the camels. So it was, a, it was a big deal coming through Jerusalem so much that all of Jerusalem was in an uproar, and that's all they were talking about. So they come, these magi. So, by the way, I'm sorry to ruin your manger scene. Um, you can keep the three wise men if you want. That's okay. Just, just take them out and move them about 10 blocks down the street. You know, because, because they came actually about two years later uh, after Jesus had already been born to his house, the Bible says. So it's all messed up, the manger scene is. But anyway, it's all good and we, we love it. But they come and... And they brought gifts to, to Jesus that were all symbolic of who Jesus was and would become. And as I shared with us last week, that's significant because as we now understand that the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwells in us, which means that whatever they gave to Jesus, in a sense, carries the meaning and the weight of and the application of what it means to, that we carry the same. So what he was to become, we too, in a sense, are to become. Jesus, they brought him frankincense, and as we learned last week, frankincense was, a, an, was an, a, an ingredient that was given to kings, excuse me, to a priests, and it represented the priesthood. Priests always used frankincense whenever they were ministering to the Lord in the temple. They would, they would put it on the coals there on the altar of incense and <clears throat> created an aroma in the holy place. They were anointed, priests were anointed to be priests with frankincense. Priests would anoint kings to be kings with frankincense. So they were always dealing with frankincense. So frankincense is very symbolic of Jesus becoming the great high priest, which as we talked about last week, we too are now kings and priests, which are nothing more than conduits between man and God. And so you have an incredible purpose in the earth, carrying with you the aroma of frankincense everywhere you go. Turn to your neighbor and tell them you are a priest. Would you tell that for me? Just, you're a priest. Yeah. Yeah, they didn't know that, but that's good to know. And this morning we're going to talk about myrrh. And myrrh is symbolic, if you would, of the suffering servant. That's, what, that's how you would describe myrrh, the suffering servant. I, I have some myrrh here as we last week put some frankincense on a few coals. I'll put some, some myrrh. I'm not going to put much on because it about, about myrrhed me out last service. So, but it will soon catch on if the Holy Spirit doesn't come like he did last week with a flamethrower and light this thing up, <laughs> and, and it, it was, so, so what was Myrrh's purpose? Well, one was a perfume. Uh, you'll read about it in the book of Esther. She was for a whole year prepared before to go to the king, and one of the things that she would put upon her every, uh, every day was, was Myrrh. It was a perfume. It was also an antiseptic. Uh, in our day in language, we would call it latinum. And it was um, an antiseptic that came from the gum resin from twigs of the rock rose. Maybe we have a picture of that this morning. And they would take these uh, twigs, leaves, and flowers, 
and they would put it all together and create what we would call myrrh. It even had a taint of opium in it and was used for bronchitis and for uh, tumors, leprosy, things like that. We would call it the rock rose today. But most commonly, myrrh was used as and was mostly known for, especially in Jesus' time, get this, as an embalming accessory. Embalming. Embalming meaning they would use this myrrh, this resin, when they were putting someone in a grave. They would take the rags that they were going to wrap the person with, and they would dip them in the myrrh, and they would wrap the, the dead person into this thing, in a sense, mummifying. The Egyptians even did this, as you can see, even to this day, lasting over more than 400 years, the mummification. Uh, much used, uh, many people use myrrh. It would take about a pound of myrrh to, to bury someone. That's typically how much they would use, a pound of myrrh. Now, this is interesting because there's a scripture that causes us to scratch our head. I'm going to read it right here, John chapter 19. This is now after the death of Jesus. It says, later Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Jesus was on the cross. And Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. And with Pilate's permission, he came and he took the body away. And he was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man you know who had earlier visited Jesus at night. And now get this, Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes of about 75 pounds. Some texts would say up to 100 pounds of myrrh that Nicodemus brought with him to bury Jesus. Now what was significant about that, because in Jesus' time, myrrh was actually more valuable and costly than gold. So I did a little research and put some numbers together. And I began to calculate and, and found out that the price of gold right now, so if we put it in today's dollars, is about $1,800 an ounce. So just go conservative, 75 pounds, which is, I believe, 1,200 ounces, by $1,800 an ounce, and we have an astronomical amount of money which Nicodemus put in the form of myrrh and brought to Jesus. How much money are you talking about? Over $2 million. I said $2 million. I know some of y'all like didn't hear me. I, I said $2 million worth of myrrh. I mean, that, that would be a, a, a sizable amount of money for 75 pounds of myrrh at just the going rate of gold, it would cost. Can you imagine the conversation Nicodemus must have had with his wife prior to that purchase? Sweetheart, I, I need to talk to you. What, what, what's, up, what's up, honey? I'm about to sell the farm and uh, the lake house and, uh, and, the, and the nice car we have. And I'm going to make an investment. 
Wow. Well, you've always been wise with our money, Nicodemus. I can't wait to hear what you're going to invest in. It must be really good. I'm going to invest in an asset called myrrh. Okay, yes, that's very valuable. So what are you going to do? What, are we going to hold on to it for a while and wait till the price of myrrh goes even higher? What, what are we going to do? Well, that's, uh, that's what I wanted to talk to you about. Actually, what I want to do is I want to pour it on Jesus' body. Excuse me? Uh, the man that just died a few hours ago up on Calvary? Yeah, yeah. Joseph was talking with Joseph. He's got a really fancy tomb. He wants to donate to Jesus, and we got to get him out of, off the cross and before the night falls and into the tomb. And, and of course, he has to be proper, buried properly. So I, I, I figured, I figured I, we can make a small investment and, and pour the Niagara Falls and myrrh over his body. Honey, I don't know what's going on with you right now, but you need to get your medicine out because you are lost your mind. We're talking about a dead man. I mean, I could understand if it was alive. He was, he, this little man's dead, and you want to go and take all of our investments, perhaps, and, 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 and douse a, a dead man? Hmm. Come, come on now. I mean, let's just talk in Bible here. So I'm thinking to myself, what would cause a person to want to do that to begin with? That's just unheard of. That's almost on the verge of being crazy. And two things come to my mind. There's two reasons why I think he would do such a thing. Number one, he was a very thankful person. Aren't you thankful for thankful people? I believe he was extremely thankful. Why was he thankful? Because Nicodemus had, had received this incredible privilege one night of speaking and talking face to face with the Son of God. He didn't probably understand at the time the depth of who he was talking to. He realized he was a good teacher. He realized he was... He was um, he was unlike any other rabbi that had ever come along, but this guy was somewhat different. And, 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 and now that everything has transpired and everything was passed, he was very thankful that he had an evening where he, by himself, had a conversation, a one-on-one -on -one with God in the flesh. Can you imagine? Can you imagine having a conversation one night with God in the flesh. Everything after that moment would be the conversation that you would have with people everywhere you went. You would, meet, you would be at Starbucks having a cup of coffee. Hey, how you doing? Good, good. Well, my name is JP. And do you know I've talked to God face to face? I mean, every class reunion, everywhere you would go, you would make sure people understood you had a conversation with God himself one day. You would be very thankful of all the people in the world to be able to have a conversation, to hear the voice of God, to see God incarnate and to, and to have a conversation. Nothing else. It would be the pinnacle of your life. Everything else is downhill compared to that moment. He was very thankful. 
There was no price he wasn't willing to pay to show his thanks. And yet the other, at the same time, I think there was something else playing in his heart as well. I believe he was full of regrets. Now knowing that he was the Messiah, now knowing that that was the Son of God that he had talked to, that, that had a conversation with him, that, that had actually perhaps given him the opportunity to follow him, where he could have been a disciple of this Jesus, just like the other 12. He, he could have been one of the, the 12. He could have gone, he could have lived for three and a half years with the Son of God. He could have listened to every word. He could have seen every miracle. He could have, he could have been a part of the meals and heard the conversation. He, he, would have, he had the opportunity to spend three and a half years with the Son of God, but yet he was caught up in the religious system of the hour, still had questions, still had doubts. Uh, and when it was all said and done, finally when Jesus took his last breath, uh, there was an earthquake and the sky turned dark uh, and everything began to happen and he saw the veil torn from the top to the bottom. It dawns on him, my goodness, uh, I had a conversation with God himself. I could have followed him, but I decided not to. That's a regret. I believe probably the saddest words ever penned or said are the words, it might have been. It might have been. My life could have been different had I. Because life is a series of forks in the road, isn't it? Series of choices that we make, all followed with consequences. Many times we make the right choice, sometimes we make the wrong. And when we do, we find ourselves looking back over our lives and we feel full of regret. What do you do when you're filled with regret? What do you do when you feel like you made the wrong decision? Now you're stuck with the consequences. You go and find some myrrh and you pour it out upon Jesus and you worship him and I could hear probably Nicodemus whispering under his breath as he and Joseph are perhaps picking the body up and wrapping this liquid myrrh wrapped linen around his head and chest and laying him down around his thighs and down to his feet. And myrrh is literally just literally standing. They're standing in myrrh. The whole, the whole cave is just filled with a sense of myrrh. It's just, it's just myrrh everywhere. And I could hear, I could hear probably Nicodemus saying something like, I, 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 I wish I would have, I, but I love you and I, I, I would worship you now. And I, I could hear that kind of thing going on. It was a very sobering moment. Myrrh. And so the wise men brought myrrh, an embalming smell, fluid, liquid. Why, why would they bring myrrh? Because myrrh symbolized the suffering that Jesus would endure and the death that Jesus would experience. You know, let, let me ask you a question. If, 
If I had to just change gears for a second, but if I had uh, this, this gift of predicting who is going to be in the national, how many football fans do we have? We got any football fans? No? Okay, good. If I could predict to you who's going to be in the national championship uh, uh, finals uh, coming up next month uh, or so, and, and I could tell you the exact two teams and the final score, you'd be like, oh, that's pretty cool. There's only four teams to pick from, so that's two out of four. You, the score, that was an accident, I'm sure. And, and you wouldn't be all that impressed if I could tell you now next year the two teams are going to be, and I'd tell you the two teams, and here's what the score is going to be. You'd be like, wow, well, that's pretty cool. That was surely an accident. I don't know how you did that. But if I, were to, if I were to say, well, let me tell you something. I know who's going to be in the national championship in 10 years, and I can tell you the exact teams and the score, and I was right. I promise you ESPN would be knocking on my door, offering me a contract, and asking my opinion on every national championship from that point on. Come on, somebody. I probably would be buying all sorts of lottery tickets and, no, I'm kidding. If I were to predict who's going to be in the national championship, the exact teams and the exact score in 700 years from now, and I was right, you call me a prophet. And that's exactly what we have in the man named Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 53, 700 years before this moment of Jesus' birth, he says this, prophetically describing this coming Messiah, how he would die, why he would die, the kind of tomb he would even be buried. And let's just read it together. He was talking about Jesus, Isaiah prophesied. This Messiah was despised and rejected. A man of sorrows, acquainted with deepest grief. We turned our backs on him. We looked the other way. He was despised and we did not care. Yet, in, yet it was our weaknesses that he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins. But no, he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. And all of us, like sheep, have strayed away. We have left God's path to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. He was oppressed, treated harshly, never said a word, led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as sheep are silent before the shears, he did not open his mouth. Unjustly condemned, he was led away. No one cared that he died without descendants, that his life was cut short in midstream. But he was struck down for the rebellion of my people. He had done no wrong, never deceived anyone. But he was buried like a criminal. He was put in a rich man's grave. Enter Joseph of Arimathea, a very wealthy man. It was the Lord's good plan to crush him and cause him grief. Yet, when his life is made an offering for sin, he will have 
many descendants. He will enjoy a long life and the Lord's good plan will prosper in his hands. When he sees all that is accomplished by his anguish, he will be satisfied. And because of his experience, my righteous servant will make it possible for many to be counted righteous for he will bear all their sins. Mm. And so the Magi gave him myrrh because he was born to die. Many, many young babies are born in the world and many will become great people, but none of them were born to die. Oh, we see young people all the time, we see little babies, and, 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 and we even talk about, we start seeing their tendencies, and we go, oh, he's going to be an artist, or she's going to be a musician, or, or they're going to do this, or they're going to do that. And I was, my granddaughter, she's three years old, was running across the yard. I had a neighbor who's very athletic, and he looked at her and goes, she's going to be an athlete. I said, how do you know that? He said, because I can tell the way she runs. I'm like, what? And people literally prophesy things over little baby most of the time what they want it to be when they grow up. But, but this child, unlike any other child, let me show a photograph, a painting. This child, unlike any other photo, uh, uh, child, was born to die. It was born to fulfill one purpose. And the purpose wasn't to write a great book or to to pen some great song. The purpose of this child was to die. So that in its death, there could be life. Mm. Imagine having a baby shower. Maybe Mary has a baby shower. People walking in and they got the car seat and they bring the diapers and they bring the blankets and the little baby clothes, pacifiers, the little thing that spins around the head that makes them dizzy. A rocking chair here. And then some guys down from another place you don't even know, they call themselves the wise guys. And they come in and go, hey, Hank. Bring it on in, we got, we got a gift for this little child. And they bring in to your house a casket. You'd be like, excuse me? Well, we know what the purpose of this child is, so we thought we'd bring the gift that matched his purpose. So we don't think of a little baby in those terms. But that's exactly what his purpose was. And not only that, but Jesus would show us what perfect obedience looked like. He would never live unto himself. He would never make his own decision. He would never decide to go down a path based upon what he feels would make him comfortable or happy at that moment, unlike us. 
We make decisions all the time based upon what would make us happy. We feed off of advertisements all day long about this will make you happy, this will make you comfortable, this will make you feel good about yourself. And, and, and the whole world just bombards us with this, this temptation to live unto yourself. But no, not Jesus. Every single decision, every conversation, every movement that he would make was all done in one accord with his Father. And it was only in obedience that he would do anything. He would say, I only say what I hear my Father say. I only do what I hear my, see my Father do. He never lived one day, one moment, one second unto himself. Everything he did was about others. It was about the world. It was about God's purpose. It was about God's plan. He never ever lived unto himself. Not one selfish bone, not one self-centered thought. He lived for others and only others to be succeed, to succeed and to be lifted up. Aren't you thankful that we have a God who laid his life down for us in such a way that we can live the same? So I'm excited about that. That encourages me, that gives me hope. That through his death, I don't have to be self-centered, I don't be, have to be selfish. Listen, I'm like anybody else. If I had it my way, I'd be the most selfish person on the earth. But I'm thankful that I have a, I have a friend called Jesus who dealt with my selfishness years ago. And now we're gonna go deep for just a second. Have our worship team come. Jesus' myrrh experience began to culminate at the Last Supper. We see Jesus and the depth of his love for these disciples as he kneels down and begins to wash their feet. It would be the last night of his life. And he loves on them and he shows them the depth of his love by serving them. Not only would he wash their feet, he would serve them bread and wine and tell them this is my body. And he would turn to one of the disciples named Judas and he would say, it's time. Activate the plan. What you must do, do quickly, just get this thing over with. No one knew what Jesus was talking about. Judas knew exactly. He leaves. About that time, Jesus says, I, I, need, to, I need to spend some time with my father. I, I need to go back to my favorite praying spot, the Garden of Gethsemane, the place of the pressing. I need to spend some time with the father. And he took three of his favorite disciples, Peter, James, and John, with him. And he said unto them, y'all, Y'all pray, pray, pray for yourselves, especially because temptation's about to come to you and pray for me as well. I, I'm gonna go with stone's throw and I'm gonna talk to my father. Aren't you, aren't you glad that when, 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 there's a, when there's a press on your life, that there's always an option, there's always a God, there's always a father that you can run to, that you can go to. Even if it's a stone's throw away, there's always, there's always someone to talk to. So he goes to the father comes back to check on his, his buddies, his disciples who were, who were there to, to support him, and they're sound asleep. 
It's interesting, sometimes God will put you in a place, in a position in life where even the best buds you have, your best friends that you have, even perhaps a family member are no longer there to be counted on. You can't lean into their life or support. It's only a God God thing. It's only you and God. You feel like you're all alone, but you're never all alone because you always have a loving father you can pour your heart out into, and he hears your heart. And the myrrh, the tip, the top of the bottle myrrh being opened in the heavenlies. And Jesus begins to pray and his heart begins to beat faster. Sweat comes to his body and he, the, now he begins to sense the weight of the world starting to descend upon him. He begins to catch the scent of myrrh being poured out from the heavenlies into his body, into his life. And he begins to feel the emotional weight uh, and the strain that mankind suffers under on a daily basis throughout the world. Uh, he begins to sweat. Uh, drops of blood falls to the ground. It was not sweat. It's literally blood. His capillaries are bursting from what's underneath his skin. Uh, his heart is beating and breaking with every beat that it takes. Uh, and finally he goes back to the disciples uh, and he goes, it's time, it's time. He hears the rattling of the Roman soldiers' uh, armor as they come up the small hill called Mount Olive. Uh, they come to him uh, and they take him at spear point uh, and they cast him at the high priest's feet uh, and they say, here's the one you wanted. Uh, and they, here's the one Caiaphas and Caiaphas begins uh, to make a mock trial. No one says anything that's true. Finally, Jesus Jesus makes a statement uh, that yes, he is the son of God. And he says, do we need anything more than this evidence? Uh, this is a heretic. Uh, and at that point, uh, they begin to become so angry that this man would think that he was the son of God, uh, that they begin to punch him with their fists. Uh, they begin to spit him in with his face. Uh, they begin to curse at him in his ears. Uh, and with every fist punch, uh, there was the weight of the world, anger uh, and bitterness uh, and unforgiveness uh, and lust and greed and jealousy, whatever other sin you can imagine. And Jesus stood there and he took every punch from mankind. And he would have stood there for days, weeks or even months if he had to, taking every single weight of every man's sin and transgression. And he did it because he loves you. The high priest says, I'm done with him. He needs to be killed. This man says he's like God, he's like God. He, no, no. And they take him to Pilate. Pilate says, no, send him to Herod. Herod says, no, send him back to Pilate. Pilate finally, Pilate deals with him and sentences him to death. Go, do what you need to do. Make sure you flog him before you crucify him though. So they take Jesus and they tie his hands to a post and the professional whipper with this cat of nine tails on his whip begins to lay those nine, those spikes, those balls full of bone and metal. And they begin to grab Jesus's back and begins to pull his skin backwards. Every whip, a stripe, every whip, uh, another, another stripe, another wound, uh, organs now being exposed. Uh, Jesus uh, grimacing in pain and in agony, never saying a word, uh, crying out in his spirit before God. Now the bottle of myrrh is being full tilt uh, upon his life. Uh, it's, he senses uh, now the sickness uh, because that is what that whipping was about. Uh, he was whipped uh, for your, uh, 
for your diseases. The Bible says upon his, upon his back, the stripes of every disease uh, and ailment and sickness known to man was laid upon his back. Uh, and now the myrrh is pouring uh, for, your, for your healing, for your cure, for God's hand to touch your body in a supernatural way. His body was broken for me and for you. pick him up, they strip him of his clothes, they put a purple robe around him to mock him as a king because kings wore purple robes and they put a purple robe to mock him as king of the Jews uh, and they say prophesy to us uh, son of God so prophesy to us the son of God and they put a crown upon his head full of thorns and blood begins to drip down his face and Jesus now losing blood quickly quickly myrrh still flowing from the heavenlies over his body they put a put a 100 pound beam upon his shoulders uh, and said now walk uh, and he's got a 650 yard track uh, up to the skull the hill of the skull called Golgotha where he would eventually die and when he, they lay him down they lay him down on that wooden cross uh, and they stick seven seven inch spikes up in his wrists uh, and upon his feet uh, and he hangs there on, on a tree on a wooden beam uh, for you and for me and with every breath uh, he has to lift his self up from the nails on his in his feet to for a, for a, a little bit of air and to fall back down again uh, eventually his arms would come out of socket uh, and he would breathe his last breath uh, and he would look out upon all of humanity and he would look up into his father as his father had to turn his back upon him uh, and he would say the greatest words all mankind's ever heard it is finished my god One last thing. It's interesting to me that when he was a child, they brought him myrrh. One of the things myrrh was, it was an antiseptic. They brought myrrh as a child and he took the myrrh. And basically what he was saying was, I'll live my life and, and I, I, will, I will take your pain from you. And he lived his life and everywhere he went, he saw pain. He would weep over people and their lives and the situation that they were going through. And he would walk up to them and he would lay his hands upon them and leprosy would go and dead people would rise and, and eyes would be healed and they would see again. And, and demons would come out of bodies and everywhere he went he saw pain yet everywhere he went he was anointed with myrrh and he would deliver people from their pain but isn't it ironic though when he's on the cross some worshipers come together and they grab some rags dip it in some wine and some myrrh the bible says uh, and they put it at the end of the long stick and they hold it up to jesus's mouth uh, so, uh, jesus you need to get some numbness you need to take some numbing uh, uh, 
burn. Get rid of some of this pain. Yeah, we just want to help you. And the Bible says that Jesus turns his face uh, and doesn't take the myrrh. He refuses the myrrh. Why does he refuse the myrrh? Here's why. Because he wanted to make sure he felt every ounce of pain humanity had to offer. He didn't want to miss anything. And he wanted everyone to know, even in his death, uh, that I've come to take away your pain. I've been wounded for your transgressions. Uh, I will be bruised for your iniquities. Upon my back will be the chastisement of your peace. Give me all the pain you have and I'll take it to the grave. (laughs) That is why they brought brought Jesus myrrh. They brought Jesus myrrh to give us hope. They brought him myrrh to give us a chance they brought him burn to give us a chance to live a life where we're not selfish we're not self-centered we, we're obedient unto the Lord no matter what the cost and that our bodies can walk in healing and, and the bruises of our regrets can be washed away he came and he took all of the myrrh it would bring death to humanity upon himself did it for us he did it for you and he did it for me we ask the prayer teams to come and we ask the worship team to lead us one more time in that great song we just sang I'm going to ask you I'm just going to ask you to love on the Lord if nothing else just give God thanks for, for what he's done give God some thanks for where he's at in your life give God thanks for the myrrh that he's poured upon our lives. Can we just give God some thanks and sing and worship him this morning? Come on.
aren't you thankful this morning, church? Aren't you thankful? Aren't you thankful he took the myrrh from our lives? This morning, perhaps, you're in this room and this king that we talk about, you don't really understand, you don't know. But the beautiful thing is, you can make the greatest decision with no regrets this morning by asking him to come into your heart, giving him the chance to live his life through you. So you don't have to live life with regrets. You don't have to look back on your life and go, if I only had. So this morning, eyes open and everyone looking around. You can say, Pastor, this morning, today, I want to come to Christ. I want to make him the Lord of my life. I'm going to surrender my life. I'm going to ask him to come into my heart. Maybe you've known the Lord for a while and you walked away and you want to come back to the Lord right where you're at. Would you just, would you just give a hand? Would you just raise your hand and say, that's me, Pastor. I want you to pray for me this morning. Come on. Amen. Yeah, come on. I want Jesus in my life. I want Jesus in my heart. Amen. Come on. I want Jesus. I want Jesus. I want Jesus. Come on. I'm surrendering my life to the Lord. So who else? I want to surrender my life unto the Lord today. I'm laying it all down. I'm laying it all down. I'm coming back. I'm coming back to the King this morning. Coming back to the King this morning. Amen. I'm going to ask you, those that raised your hand this morning, I'm going to ask you to make a bold move, and I'm going to ask you to come. As we're going to sing this one more time, I'm going to ask you to join us right here. And I just want to pray with you right here at the altar. I want to pray my prayer, best prayer for you. Would you just do me the favor and come step out. You raise your hand. I want to know Jesus. Come right now. Come on. I want to know Jesus. I want to know Jesus. Making him the Lord of my life. Turning my life over to him. Surrendering my life into the Lord. Coming back. I'm coming back. Nothing's standing in the way. I'm thankful for the mercy. I'm thankful for the pain. I want to give him the praise. I want to give him the glory. Come on, sing it, church. Oh, give him all the glory. Come on, come. You still want to come. You didn't raise your hand. Come. Come right now and meet these people with them. Join them. I'm here this morning. I'm coming to give my life to Jesus. I'm going to surrender my life to the Lord. Come on, one more time. Oh, Forgive me of my sins. Come into my heart. Live your life through me. Take everything out that is of me and put everything in that is of you. Yeah. 
I want to ask our prayer teams to come stand behind them. I just want to honor you all for coming and thanking you for making this incredible decision. Thank you for renewing your heart, some of you, for the first time committing your life for others. We'll have a Bible out there for you. Don't leave without just giving you a Bible and some material. Our prayer team is going to pray for you, and while they're doing that, I'm going to take a moment and pray for all of us this morning that are left here. This Christmas season is an incredible time of the year. But as I shared just for a few minutes, our cry is God deliver us from selfishness and self-centeredness. And so this morning, I just, I just feel like we just need to tap into that, just lean into that, that idea for just a moment. And I think we need to give God some permission to deal with us concerning that. Not many people would say they're selfish. Typically not a badge that they go around declaring. But honestly, we all have this like incredible depth and root of selfishness where I'm gonna do things my way, on my terms, in my time, and it's gonna be all about me. But the beauty of myrrh is that it shows us that we don't have to live life like that. Man, come on. That we can literally love God with all of our heart and love one another as we love ourselves. So this morning, just right where you're at, would you just put your hand on someone's shoulder? Hold their hand, whatever you want to do, what you're comfortable with. But I just want to pray a prayer that we can all agree because we're one family. Father, we offer ourselves unto you and we ask that you deliver us from ourselves. We surrender everything and we ask Holy Spirit for the filter that's available to us before we make any decisions. We, we say, God, what is it you want? What do you want to do? What is it? What's your will right here in this situation? What do you want to do right here? And we thank you that you're going to show us that you're going to make that opportunity available. And then we're going to be able to walk out the rest of our lives, whatever length of time that is, as people totally surrendered to you as your servants in the earth. And for that, we give you all the praise. In Jesus' mighty and glorious name. Can you just give God one more hand of praise? Can you give him one more hand of praise this morning? Come on. Come on. Turn your neighbor, tell them, come on, you got myrrh all over you, God bless you. We'll see you Wednesday night, God bless you. We'll see you Wednesday night, take a great, come on, love on Jesus this morning. Oh.